Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us on this Monday, and that means time for Southern California history each week. We bring you a fun, interesting portion of Southern California's background. Today, our focus is on the citrus industry, which had an enormous economic and cultural impact on our region from the late 1800s through the middle of the 20th century. From the San Fernando Valley and Ventura County, through the Inland Empire, the San Gabriel Valley, and of course, Orange County, how did it get its name? It was a citrus center. I still remember in my childhood, up through my teen years, just miles and miles of orange groves in Orange County where uh, you would go between the San Diego and Santa Ana freeways and pretty much all you'd see were were orange groves uh, for many, many miles. Well, that, of course, with the development of Southern California came to a close. But the citrus industry left behind a number of landmarks, and we even see adaptive reuse. In Claremont, for example, uh, a whole entertainment district uh, developed around the packing houses that were there from Claremont's uh, big role in the citrus industry. Joining us to talk about that history is Vince Moses, uh, museum and, and preservation consultant. He's the CEO of his own firm, Vincate and Associates. He had been the museum Museum director for the Museum of Riverside, which uh, AirTalk went on the road back for our 20th anniversary tour. And I was just reminding Vince, that was 18 years ago because we're coming up um, on our 39th anniversary in April of next year. Uh, it's been that long. Vince, so good to see you. Thank you for coming in to talk with us. Well, thank you, Larry. I'm really happy to be here. So g- give us a sense of the size of this industry and the number of decades that it was dominant in agriculture here. I think, Larry, you really defined the time frame from the mid late 19th century to maybe 1965, 70. Southern California was really defined by citrus. It was a tremendous growth engine that in some ways brought about its own demise. But Riverside alone, for instance, was surrounded by 20,000 acres of Washington Naval Orange Groves. It, at one time, the wealthiest city per capita in the entire United States because it had become the home of the Washington Naval Orange. And a marker of its significance is the existence today of California Citrus State Historic Park in Riverside, commemorating the kind of power citrus had over the development of this region for that period of time. Uh, And today, still, Redlands, another one of those citrus-growing towns near Riverside, emphasizes the impact of the industry on the identity of that community, 
preserving citrus groves, doing developments around uh, the idea of citrus as a driving engine. So it's still available. And the industries you know moved into San Joaquin Valley, Central Valley in the mid 20th century. But up until that time, really, we were defined both on economics and culturally by the citrus landscape. Well, even the town name of Pomona, isn't that the goddess of agriculture? That's the goddess of agriculture and um, played a big part in kind of the early scientific experimentation study around citrus until a citrus station of the University of California at Riverside took control of that. And even today, the most important citrus variety collection in the world, in the world, this is the germ bank for all varieties of citrus, is at the University of California, Riverside, in their College of Agricultural and Natural Sciences. Because of citrus, the, the Asian citrus psyllid, which we can talk about later, that bring in the greening disease to Southern California citrus, they have a lot of their groves now covered by a fine mesh netting to keep that little citrus psyllid oh. out. And the, and the original parent navel orange tree that still exists, the University of California helped cover that too so that it would uh, be um, impervious to the, um, the attack of the citrus psyllid. Let's talk about the railroad because that, that sort of grows up here uh, along with agriculture and particularly refrigerated rail cars which yes. could ship produce east and north. Um, and it's hard to th- for me to think of one without the other. They were so intertwined. Yeah, that's right. Um, the citrus industry was just dependent upon transportation of its fruit to eastern markets and beyond. In fact, they were so powerful and so reliant on uh, that kind of transportation, they approached um, uh, the railroad to tell them, we really need our own transportation uh, rail cars, our refrigerated rail cars, uh, to uh, transport that fruit safely across. Uh, and, the, and the railroad created the, the Pacific Fruit Express in the early 20th century for that purpose. And I think, I think aren't we going to talk to Ben Jenkins? We are. And I was, gonna, I was having you set the table for him <laughs> because our next guest is the man who wrote the book on this, <laughs> Benjamin Jenkins, University of Laverne, Associate Professor of History and Archivist. And his book is Octopus's Garden, How Railroads and Citrus Transformed Southern California. He's also author of California's Citrus Heritage and sits on the board of directors of the Friends of the California mm-hmm. Citrus State Historic Park in Riverside. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Benjamin Jenkins. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you and Vince in talking about the citrus industry here in Southern California. So elaborate, if you will, on on how the railroads went hand-in-hand with agriculture here. Well, as Vince indicated, the railroads that service Southern California really formed a very strong partnership with all the agricultural segments of the Golden State, and perhaps none stronger than the orange and lemon growers of Southern California. The railroad and the citrus groves sort of grew up together in the 1880s and 1890s as the railroads, uh, and in particular the Southern Pacific and Santa Fe railroads, two transcontinental systems, started to lay tracks to places like Los Angeles, Pasadena, and especially Riverside, uh, you started to see the development of more orange groves and more citrus packing houses, which were staggered along the main lines of those tracks in some of the larger citrus cities, as you indicated before, for instance, in places like uh, Claremont or Anaheim or Riverside, where we still have packing houses standing today. 
um, the railroad really went far out of its way to reach as many far-flung citrus groves as it could because it made a pretty hefty profit uh, shipping oranges and lemons from California, first to the Midwest, and then as the refrigerator cars that Vince indicated started to come into play. By the late 1880s and early 1890s, uh, people in New York and Boston could purchase oranges that were grown in California. So the railroad really opened up more markets. They determined the growth of citrus-based communities in Southern California, and they really just interacted together, the citrus and railroad industries, to create this culturally and economically dynamic landscape. How did Sunkiss Cooperative of Growers get launched? Well, Larry... Um... The growers that uh, arrived in Southern California in the 1880s, many of them were from from the Northeast. They were from businesses, from counting houses, accountants. They were bankers. They were lawyers. Not not so much, just dirt farmers, subsistence farmers. But they brought a kind of organizational mindset with them that was corporate in nature. And it occurred to them as they were doing battle with the railroads, Ben, over freight rates uh, to eastern markets that they needed to collaborate in some form or fashion in order to have a bigger fist or negotiating power with the railroads. So in 1893, 11 growers from Riverside and Claremont and the Pomona region banded together to form the Southern California Fruit Exchange, which was a cooperative incorporated really to represent those growers and to negotiate with the railroads and to create an organized manner in which they could pick, pack, and ship their fruit. That's how it, it came about. And then by 1904-1905, the statewide organization formed the California Fruit Growers Exchange, representing upwards of 15,000 orange and lemon growers throughout mainly Southern California, but other parts of California, growing areas of California too, and it was a result of the need to be able to corral middlemen and to be able to broker their own fruit. And in the process, that generated an entire kind of vertical cartel and corporate structure, uh, really complicated proportions matching the great meat packers of Swift's, Swift and Armor and the East Coast. So that's really the way it came about. It's a cooperative enterprise. But gave them great marketing potential, too, them, because you had a brand name now yeah. for the for the citrus coming out of California. You absolutely did. They branded the name Sun-Kissed in, in 1909, 1909, I think, and began to use that for their premium fruit and actually the eventually become the name of the organization itself in 1951 when they abandoned California Fruit Growers Exchange's name and became the Sunkiss Growers Incorporated. It really became synonymous with Southern California, too. They, in essence, branded the sun of Southern California. We're talking with uh, historians and experts about the citrus industry of Southern California. That's our Southern California history segment today. Vince Moses, from whom you just heard, CEO of Vincate and Associates, which consults with museums and on preservation efforts. He had been the museum director for the Museum of Riverside, uh, and he uh, also has served as historian for the general plan of the California Citrus State Historic Park in Riverside. Benjamin Jenkins, 
University of Laverne, historian and professor and archivist, author of Octopus's Garden, How Railroads and Citrus Transformed Southern California, and the book California's Citrus Heritage. He's on the board of the Friends of the State Citrus Historic Park. If you have questions for our guests, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Professor Jenkins, uh, my wife's grandfather, was a fruit picker, and he traveled um, the state of, of California uh, picking tree fruit, including citrus. Uh, he was an immigrant from Mexico. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, how typical was it to have Mexican immigrant labor uh, in citrus? Uh, who were the people who actually uh, did the picking? It would not at all be atypical to have a migratory Mexican and Mexican-American labor force at play, Larry. Uh, really, we can date Mexican-American labor in the citrus industry to the early 20th century. Before that time, uh, citrus was really dependent on indigenous, that is to say Native American, uh, Chinese, and uh, other East Asian migrant groups to pick the fruit and to pack it in packing houses. But over the course of the 20th century, as immigration into California accelerated, particularly in the wake of the Mexican Revolution starting in about 1911, uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans really became the dominant picking and packing forces in Southern California. And they, by 1920, they really were the dominant labor force, not just in California citrus, but really throughout the state's agricultural sector. Uh, they might pick oranges in the winter when the Washington navels come into bearing, uh, Valencia's in the spring, and then go to other parts of the state to pick yeah. other crops. Yeah, that's why my wife's grandfather, he was definitely itinerant because you had to go where the work was, and he'd often be separated from his family for extended periods of time um, and, and then come back with what with what my wife's family described as the most beautiful, delicious fruit you could possibly <laughs> find. They'd get the bounty at their table, uh, even if it wasn't high-paying work. The, the the fruit that they picked was, was, by all accounts, phenomenal. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We have a couple of early emails. Duncan in Tustin said, our 1950 tract in Tustin uh, at each home with an orange tree planted in the backyard. Many have been pulled up, but ours is bountiful. Cool that when they built the homes, each plot had a tree. Why would anyone get rid of them? Duncan, that's a very good question when you've got history like that to be able to appreciate. John and Fullerton emailed, my 1963 tract home is on the old Key Ranch property in Fullerton slash Placentia. Some years ago, we put in a stone wall, and when the workers dug three feet deep for the footing, they found an enormous orange tree root that was still alive and filled the air with a glorious orange fragrance. John, what a great anecdote. 866-893-5722. Nick in Santa Ana, good to have you with us. Good morning, Larry. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Uh, yes, I'm the former president of a nonprofit in Santa Ana called the Old Orchard Conservancy, and, and our mission was to preserve historic orange orchards in the in the greater Orange County area, focusing specifically on one in Santa Ana at the time a few years back. 
but I think it's important to know that there are still some uh, a few heritage orchards around. Uh, of the one that we were trying to preserve was over 100 years old in, in Santa Ana. Unfortunately, it, it fell uh, victim to development a few years ago after many years' uh, effort to try and preserve it. But in, in additionally, out in the uh, Redlands area, uh, there's a commercial group called Old Grove Orange. It's run by a gentleman named Bob Knight hmm. out of Mentone, and he grows uh, oranges commercially with uh, heritage trees. Some of those trees are uh, 100 to 150 years of age, oh and they're goodness. being used commercially. How is, how is and, the uh, fruit the off those trees, Nick? Because of their you... historic nature. Nick, do you know what the quality of the fruit is on trees of that age? The the reason I bring that up is because in the citrus industry, by and large, it's felt that when an orange tree is 20, 25 years of age, it starts to lose its uh, vitality and capacity to produce commercial uh, volume. But Bob Knight has proven over the years that that just is not the case. Uh, This is a commercial operation. Uh, Much of what he produces goes to uh, local schools throughout Riverside County. Um, and and elsewhere, and uh, the old trees he have are producing quite quite well. So I think that kind of uh, it, it, that put to rest the the concept that old trees uh, cannot be commercially viable. That's an argument we tried to use with the city of Santa Ana in preserving the five acre, one hundred year old family owned orchard there a few years back. Nick, I so appreciate your call, former president of the Old Orchard Conservancy, joining us. I'd love to hear from you, your questions for our expert guests as we detail the citrus history of Southern California. Broad swaths of the Southland were devoted to citrus. We're talking about the business side of that, what the cultural impact was, the workers who actually picked the fruit, and what it meant for the geography of Southern California as well. We're at 866-893-5722. And how many of our local communities have an Orange Grove Street or Orange Grove Boulevard? A lot of them. Um, I'm a short walk from Pasadena's Orange Grove, but our studio's here. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. Speaking of citrus, I remember so well, um, gosh, I think they were doing this up into the 1980s, KFI Radio 50,000 Watt AM Powerhouse. In the winter, every night would do the fruit frost forecast, and they would have a guy come on who uh, worked for the government, and he would tell the growers what the conditions were and if they needed to use smudge pots or other ways of uh, dealing with low temperature, uh, particularly combined with moisture in their groves. And I loved listening to it. It felt like listening back in time, even in, you know, 1970s and 1980s Los Angeles. This is pre-internet. And of course, the idea that growers would need to be listening at the same time every night to a radio station to get a fruit from forecast to know 
know what to do with their groves is kind of funny, but it gives you a sense of how huge the impact was <clears throat> of the citrus industry that an AM powerhouse like KFI at that time would turn over up to five minutes. It's evening airtime because that fruit fraud forecast, they would go through region by region. Santa Paul of this and, and Claremont this and um, Orange County, you know, and they go through region by region because, of course, each had a microclimate. We're at 866-893-5722 as we discuss the citrus history of Orange County with University of Laverne Professor Benjamin Jenkins and Vince Moses, uh, CEO of Vincate and Associates Museum and Preservation Consulting firm. We're talking about the large uh, territory given over to citrus. Ben, what what caused the citrus, citrus industry to start contracting? We can really date a lot of the downfall of the citrus industry to the early 1940s. As I'm sure pretty much anyone knows, at that time, the United States became involved in World War II. And as a result of the fact that Southern California was right on the Pacific coast, it was sort of an ideal place to build battleships, uh, airplanes that would be used in the war against Japan that was fought across the Pacific. And so as a result of us sort of being on the front lines of the home front, if you will, the Southern California landscape sort of shifted towards industry with the number of new factories opening up and particularly uh, new housing developments to make room for all the people who were streaming into the Southland to take part in the defense industries to live in permanently. And seeing that they could make a pretty decent penny by selling their land, a lot of orange growers decided to pull up stakes. They would maybe remove their orange trees to the Central Valley, where they are still active today. And they would sell their land to housing developers to create tract homes. I I think I'm actually literally sitting across the street from what used to be an orange orchard here in the city of Laverne, which is actually now our oldest tract housing block in the city. Uh, so the, the rise of industry and the population boom that started as a result of World War II and really continued for decades thereafter was what, if you'll allow me a bad pun, planted the seeds of the demise <laughs> of the citrus industry. Ben, I, I remember um, even as a child of the 60s and 70s, as so much of this development was booming in places like Orange County and the San Fernando Valley, of course the Inland Empire as well, that there were, I'll use the term, and I don't mean this pejoratively, old-timers at the time who were who were really upset about this. And at the same time, they understood that there was a need for progress and housing to accommodate all the, the families that were settling in Southern California, that there was a feeling of a culture being lost. And, Ben, I, and a feeling of openness being lost as we move from so much agrarian to, as, as you mentioned, um, heavy industry here in Southern California. Ben, I wonder if, as historian, you can speak to that. Yeah, as, as Vince indicated when he was talking about the incorporation and growth of Sunkist, a lot of the growers really knew each other. They were in close connections. They might be on the local boards of school districts. They might be in charge of local banks or irrigation societies. And so when they sold the orange orchards or when they started to turn their land over to housing developments, that sense of community really did start to disappear. Citrus sort of became uh, something that was part of the past, not seen as the commercial engine of Southern California anymore. Um, but what really fascinates me about it is the fact that citrus, as you indicated, really took a good 30 or 40 years to completely wind down in Southern California. So it 
both at the same time has abandoned us in that it's not commercially viable down here anymore, but it also has this strange grasp on the public imagination because we're not willing to let go of the vestiges of those communities, whether that's in the form of packing houses, public murals that you'll see in many towns in the San Gabriel Valley or in the Inland Empire showing what orange rows used to look like. Um, in my work as a historian, I frequently come into contact with people who lived in the San Gabriel Valley who took part in the orange industry, and they'll share stories about how they would have to be awakened uh, early in the morning, maybe at 2 or 3 a.m., to light up the smudge pots that you mentioned earlier to prevent the crops from freezing. So that community hasn't disappeared entirely, uh, but unfortunately, as days go by, fewer and fewer people are able to share their recollections because they're moving away or sadly passing on. So that community certainly isn't as large or robust yeah. as it used to be, but it is still with us. We're talking with Professor Ben Jenkins of the University of Laverne, author of Octopus's Garden, How Railroads and Citrus Transformed Southern California, also author of California's Citrus Heritage, Vince Moses with us, former director of the Museum of History in Riverside, or Museum of Riverside, and also very heavily involved uh, with California Citrus State Historic Park, both Vince and Ben, very involved. And this, I want to talk about the park. I haven't had the chance to visit it yet. What do people find when they go? They find about 200 acres of viable commercial naval orange fruit. They find um, an interpretive center currently that will discuss the way citrus arrived from southeastern China across to Europe and then to the New World. And soon, very soon, they'll find an engine, also a working uh, water company engine, the Western Engine, at that park. And they'll find tours. They'll find a citrus variety grove that the University of California helped us establish as part of the general plan uh, operations. And what I want to tell you, though, Larry, is that we were just very fortunate to receive $30 million from the state of California to finally do the full build-out, historic structures build out of California Citrus State Historic Park and uh, the friends are now in negotiation with uh, the State Parks Department on how we're going to undertake that and get started as fast as possible to use that. Um, the park is, is a just a hallmark of Southern California and that and that industry that made this region's identity for so very long and we hope you'll come out and Ben and I'll give you yeah. a oh, we'll I, give you we'll I give will, you a tour. I will take you up on that and thirty million dollars to build it out. That's uh that's a lot of money to have at your disposal. Well it really is because when we first opened the public um, uh, access to the park, we lost ten million dollars because the Bond Act, the the first park bond act in the history of the state of California in nineteen ninety, went down to an ignominious defeat. And so we were not able to do the full build-out of the park. It was supposed to open in, in, in 1993, which it did with big fanfare. But now with this money, we're going to mm -hmm. fully build out that general plan and bring it to complete fruition. That's great. Uh, let's talk with Heidi in Irvine. Heidi, good to have you with us. Uh, please share your uh, memories of uh, Citrus Southern California. Well, I grew up in Granada Hills, and um, in the summertime, us little kids would walk um, over to the San Fernando Mission. On, on San Fernando Mission, next, uh, kind of across from where the San Fernando Mission was, there was the old Calphane 
orange processing plant. So when we would walk, we would smell these oranges being crushed, and you could smell the orange peel. And the guys would always let us take the oranges um, off the conveyor belt before they were going in to get crushed. So we would have these oranges that were for the orange juice. So, you know, that's the way I grew up in Granada Hills. There were cornfields. There were orange orchards all around the San Fernando Mission area. Um, And it was just such a great, great um, memory. And it's, you know, it's gone, but um, it's something that I share with my kids um, or my adult kids. But, you know, that part of the area is just, you know, it's all gone. It's just memories. But the mission's still there, and that's really cool. And the incredible photos, one of the things, of course, is because this area was marketed to Easterners as a part of the whole, you know, land boom here. So a lot of the come on used agriculture, actually. It's kind of ironic that that was used as image building for Southern California at the same time they would succumb to to land speculation, which is kind of interesting, Vince. Oh, absolutely. Sunkist and, and the growers began and packers began to develop this kind of promotional um, citrus label to go on the ends of their orange boxes and lemon boxes that would uh, would deliver to eastern markets in the middle of the winter this idyllic view of Southern California as the California Mediterranean with Spanish colonial architecture and just uh, you know, beautiful, uh, beautiful young women. You know, the sun-kissed mist. So that whole thing was a promotional enterprise. And one thing I might point out, Larry, sun-kissed advertising, in order to keep promoting this massive growth of uh, sale of this massive growth of the industry, actually invented the idea of drink an orange. Not or we think of Florida with orange juice, yeah, right. Yeah. But it was really Sunkiss Advertising Division with Don Francisco that developed a promotional uh, ad called "Drink an Orange," where it would take sixteen oranges to develop some orange juice for the breakfast table, uh, and that. So Sunkiss popularized sell. orange juice. They Is popularized that? orange juice, wow. and they actually they actually did this. This will interest you. The very first. Coast to Coast Radio Broadcast was sponsored by Sunkiss Growers Incorporated, 1924. Which show was that? Do you recall? I can't tell you, but it was a nationwide, yeah, a nationwide broadcast. So that's, there you go. That's great. All right, as we talk about the history of orange groves, Olivia and Glendale, wondering if uh, either of you could talk about the history of the trees brought over. You were mentioning from from China, Vince, uh, and it was the Washington Naval Orange which became dominant. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, and that's from Bahia, Brazil. It was a mutant or a bud sport off of the Laranha Selecta orange, a Portuguese orange that was transported to Brazil and uh, sent up to the Department of Agriculture, and at least three, maybe three, maybe just two of those sent off to Eliza Tibbetts in Riverside, California. It was planted there, and because of the climate, because of the soil, because of the water in the Riverside area, it became this winter-ripening marvel with a glorious orange rind, you know, golden yeah. rind. very photogenic. Very photogenic. And so by the, by the mid-1880s, it had begun to supplant Mediterranean sweet oranges in California. The growers of Mediterranean sweet oranges, like Wolfskill in Los Angeles, began to top work what citrus scientists call top work, that is to to bud uh, on to uh, existing trees, Washington Naval um, uh, 
small branches or buds so that they would produce seedless oranges. So by the mid-1880s, by the early 1890s, most of the orange groves in Southern California, except on the coastal plain, which would become Valencia and Lemon, uh, San Gabriel Valley uh, across the Redlands Riverside, those all were, were naval orange groves. Amazing. Um, And uh, Liz in Southgate says, as a part of a a past job I did, I do environmental history reports on Southern California properties. What I found fascinating was how much of the land throughout our region was at one point devoted to growing citrus. Yeah, Liz, it's when you look at maps, early maps of Southern California, like early 20th century, and you see the acreage devoted to citrus, I think it's hard for people... um, and certainly hard for me to imagine what it looked like. But I remember people in my family. I remember my grandfather, who grew up in Los Angeles, early 20th century, and my great-grandfather, who came here at the turn of the 20th century, describing what the vistas looked like. You'd go up on a hill and just look at the orange groves, and it was absolutely spectacular. It left me with a sense of having seen it, even though I never really, really did. Uh, And Vivian in Encino says, looks like the last orange grove in San Fernando Valley is going to be lost to development. there any way to rescue it? Uh, ben, are you familiar with that? I, I'm not familiar with that plot. I, I have heard, yes, that the last plot of citrus that's in San Fernando, excuse me, San Fernando Valley is um, supposedly going under the plow. So um, unfortunately, short of raising enough funds to buy that land of development, I'm not really sure what one okay. could do to preserve it other than take photographs, collect oral histories, and collect people's stories of it the way uh, your your father and your grandfather shared with you, Larry. All right, gentlemen, thank you. This has been just great. I know we went a little over time beyond what, what we had planned, but so much great information. Thanks, Vince. We appreciate it. Ben, thank you as well for joining us. We appreciate it. Benjamin Jenkins, Associate Professor of History and Archivist at the University of Laverne, author of California's Citrus Heritage and the book Octopus's Garden. And our thanks to Vince Moses, the former director of the Museum of Riverside and currently uh, owner, a CEO of Vincate and Associates Museum and Preservation Consulting Firm. Thanks so much. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Coming up, the terrific writer Peter Biskin joining us. Pandora's Box, How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV. How did we get to so-called peak TV and the streaming wars? Peter will tell us all about it when we come back in 90 seconds. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 